Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Now let's kick off part two of the first volley in our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, 1987 to 1990, Rumblings from the Underground. We pick up our rollicking discussion with a visit to Manchester, England. Enjoy, y'all. All right, now, for the next little segment and movement of this little mini era that led to the fourth golden age of rock, we're leaving the United States and we're going to the United Kingdom for one of my favorite, personal favorite uh, uh, movements of this entire era that I call 24-hour party people. And if you're a smart music fan, you know what I'm referring to. Now, Throughout rock history, or even music history in general, certain times and places can be easily conflated to one drug, okay? The 1960s hippie scene in San Francisco, LSD. The glamorous and decadent disco club scene in New York in the 1970s, cocaine. Seattle grunge rock in the late 1980s through the 1990s, heroin. And in Manchester, UK, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when the form of EDM, known then as Acid House and Techno, was soundtracking a youth culture movement the likes of which the country hadn't seen since punk rock a decade earlier, that drug, ecstasy. Oh, ecstasy, a whole lot of it. Now, what started as a drug that psychologists in the U.S. quietly gave uh, to couples therapy patients during therapy sessions somehow made its way uh, into the hands of contraband and eventually to the shores of the United Kingdom in the mid-1980s. Dealers started dealing. Club kids started buying. Users started using. Soon enough, by 86, it became an underground sensation and listening habits changed. Out went synth pop, new wave, and the softer spectrum of indie rock. In came the fresh sounds of house music from Chicago and techno from Detroit. Basically, it's incessantly and endlessly rhythmic music you can incessantly and endlessly dance to while submitting yourself to the high of the ultimate visceral, sensual body drug. And this was more than a fad. This new kind of music culture spread out throughout Europe, eventually hitting the U.S. and the rest of the world. And it hasn't really gone away. Going to a, nope. going to a club where loud, fast, electronic dance music is pounding away and people dancing and sometimes even fucking away to their heart's content is now as commonplace as having a Netflix account. You know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ra- raves... I mean, raves are the perfect distillation of sort of tribal uh, celebration. It, 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 whoever came up with the idea of, of the rave, the kind of the uh, ode to ecstasy yeah. in a warehouse right. idea, uh, it was fucking genius. Absolute fucking <laughs> totally. genius. Now, you may ask the question, what does this have to do with rock music? A whole <laughs> lot, since this ecstasy-fueled EDM made more than a lasting impact on a new breed of British guitar bands who would incorporate electronic dance rhythms and funk into a new style of rock, one that 
would be directly echoed by and find full fruition in both the Britpop and Electronica explosions of the 1990s, part of the fourth golden age of rock. So let's start with the Happy Mondays, a band of working class misfits from the Manchester suburbs, if there ever was one. They spent the first half of the 1980s doing nondescript, typically British, jangly, indie guitar pop of the sort that really only the Smiths excelled at. (laughs) Um, Through some fortuitous demo tape passing, Factory Records, the label headed by legendary TV presenter and Hacienda club owner, the legendary late great Tony Wilson, um, Factory picked up the band and released their first EP in 85. Enter Ecstasy, House, Techno, and the fact that Tony Wilson and his Hacienda Club knew where the cultural tides were turning, and the Mondays eagerly changed musical direction. Their debut album from 1987, Squirrel and G-Man 24-Hour Party People Plastic Face Can't Smile, Yes, that's the whole name of the album. (laughs) Saw their jangly guitar pop get a little funkier and groovier. But the main single from the album, 24 Hour Party People, really portended things to come. Uh, It was a huge indie hit in the UK and a modest hit on American college radio. Um, 24 Hour Party People is an all-time dance rock classic with its 4-4 beat, slinkly gliding bass line, swirling keyboards, and frontman uh, Sean Ryder's uh, surreal account of gleeful hedonism. Joy Division and the Smiths, uh-oh, it's time to dance and be happy, baby. However, it is with their next two albums that the Happy Mondays became an iconic band of the era. Simply titled Bummed, their second album, produced by legendary Joy Division producer Martin Hannett, came out in 1988 and musically served as a sonic mirror for the ecstasy high from beginning to end. Whereas Hannett's productions with Joy Division, they were stark, gloomy, moody, and claustrophobic in the best way possible, of course. His work with the Mondays was the 180 degree opposite. It was dense, colorful, funky, and it was also kaleidoscopic. Um, It was also very psychedelic in a time when practically nothing else was psychedelic, (laughs) Uh, drawing a distinct line of counterculture familiarity between the LSD-drenched lovins of the 1960s and the ecstasy-drenched raves of this period. Uh, It was arguably the first time a full instrumentation rock band uh, tried to replicate the mood, feeling, and textures of electronic dance music head-on. Uh, somewhere James Murphy of LCD Sound System had to be listening, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, no um, question. The album was a smash hit in the UK and Europe, and tracks like Mad Cyril, uh, Wrote for Luck, and Lazy Itis uh, became rave culture anthems. Um, they under And they were all underscored and driven home by Sean Ryder's cynical, demented character sketches and unique vocal phrasings. Uh, the follow-up album, Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, was produced by legendary trance music DJ Paul Oakenfold and came out in 1990. It was also a best-selling pop cultural phenomenon in the UK and Europe, as well as being a minor breakthrough in the US for the band, actually hitting number 89 on the Billboard album chart. 
Uh, it also got some play on rock radio. A um, couple of the, the singles, uh, Kinky Afro and Step On. However, it was in the UK where this album became the de facto soundtrack for rave culture and the standard bearer for the fusion of indie rock and dance music. What powered the record through, aside from Oakenfold's cleaner production, as opposed to Hannett's druggy fog, was a heavy infusion of disco and soul that powered both singles that I mentioned, Step On and Kinky Afro, uh, to the top five of the UK singles charts. Shockingly enough, number nine and number one, respectively, on the US rock singles chart. People don't remember that. Oh, yeah. And check out the guitar riff on Dennis and Lois, the tra- track from that album, which was a riff that you 2 would pilfer more than once for songs on their Octung Baby album. So the Happy Mondays eventually, unfortunately, dissolved into a haze of hedonism, heroin, of course, dysfunction, and all of this resulting in one more album, albeit an unsuccessful flop before they broke up. But man, did they leave their mark on an era and a generation before artists and bands during the fourth golden age of rock would take the Monday's approach to greater heights. So, Chris, how happy are you about the Mondays? Uh, I, I would I would say very happy. Sean Ryder is an interesting is an interesting cat. Uh, you're right that they're, they're them and another band you're about to talk about, uh, but more so the Happy Mondays. They're really a bridge. They're one of those. We're talking this whole the imagery of this whole episode yeah. is building that bridge to the fourth golden age of rock. Uh, the Happy Mondays are definitely one of those uh, those bands. Uh, two bands off the top of my head that can both uh, find influence, you know, obviously from the Manchester scene as a whole, but from the happy Mondays and uh, feel free to disagree with me would be like primal scream and massive attack. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, two bands that you wouldn't necessarily put in the same boat. Uh, they're there uh, more uh, abstractly. I'd say blur probably right, has a little bit, some, yeah. some influence. Yeah. That, that comes uh, from this. And so a little bit, it's like the more electronic part of Britpop uh, from the mid nineties, Pulp, but it all, yeah. Pulp, pulp for sure. Uh, with the, you know, the worst band ever, uh, the, the can't, can't be as hell, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. Ecstasy drops into Manchester with all that generational talent that lived in that area. And, all kinds of shit happens, you know. It's just, you know, uh, come on, rock on ecstasy, punk on ecstasy, disco on ecstasy, you know, uh, whatever you want to say, you know, uh, Chicago house on ecstasy. Uh, that that's the whole thing, you know. Like X, if it wasn't for X, we wouldn't have a huge uh, chapter of American music of the last uh, thirty-five years. And you know, I've only taken that shit once, and. Uh, yeah, it was it was interesting, but I didn't take the real stuff though. I took some garbage. Uh, but I don't know, man. Uh, gotta gotta love him again. Sean Ryder is a, a singular uh, character. However, I'm a much bigger fan of the band you're going to talk about oh, next. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This is one of the absolute best bands of this pre fourth golden age era. Sure, that they're they're, they're they basically gave a first volley. It's too bad that they kind of fell apart just as things started getting going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really so, did. And that other yeah. major band that you're talking about of what is commonly known as the Madchester era, of course, 
the Stone Roses. Like the Happy Mondays, they were scrappy working class kids from suburban Manchester. Like the Mondays, the Roses started in the mid-80s as a generic jingle-jangle indie guitar band. And like the Mondays, once ecstasy kicked in and acid house rave culture took over, the Stone Roses were transformed into an era-defining band that produced one of the greatest rock albums ever made. Um, While the band was definitely influenced and impacted by Manchester's acid house and rave scene, particularly in the aesthetic with their baggy pants, colorful shirts, and even more colorful Jackson Pollock-inspired PR photos, their music, as opposed to the Happy Mondays, was more firmly rooted in classicist guitar pop, a la the Beatles or the Smiths. Lots of wah-wah guitars, psychedelic sound effects, and dance music drum rhythms tipped the band's hat to the hedonistic drug reverie of the time. But their songcraft always rooted them in classic rock. Perhaps a big reason why they crossed over to a bigger audience than even the Mondays did. Um, Their first single from 1987, Sally Cinnamon, was released on the tiny FM Revolver label, but nonetheless made a huge impact on the UK indie scene with its uh, chiming guitar hooks and gorgeous melody. It paved the way for the band to be signed to Silvertone Records, a bigger indie label, but with major label distribution. The single Elephant Stone followed in 88 and became a genuine underground indie hit with its hybrid of almost techno drum rhythms and beautifully sculpted guitar flourishes. Of course, this didn't prepare most people for the band's apocal self-titled debut album in 1989. It sold modestly at first, but by the end of the year, it had reached near the top of the UK album charts, and these, these guys were a phenomenon by then. Uh, taking the dance rhythms of Acid House, albeit very understatedly, and infusing them with classic 1960s guitar pop, folk rock, and a distinctly British indie sensibility, guitarist John Squire created beautiful sound paintings with his swirling guitars and co-wrote songs of exquisite, timeless beauty with singer Ian Brown. Uh, Swaggering stompers like I Am The Resurrection were classic examples of the band's patented confidence bordering on arrogance. Uh, the (laughs) The shuffling funk of Fool's Gold was a top 10 UK hit, a massive college radio hit in the yep. US, and arguably the definitive anthem uh, for the whole Manchester music scene, which by this time was, like, like I said, a genuine pop culture movement by now. Made of Stone is a heavenly anthem that soars with uh, some of Squire's most epic guitar work. Uh, The apotheosis of this whole acid house Manchester rave culture baggy movement was when nearly 30,000 people went to see the Stone Roses at an outdoor mini festival at Spike Island uh, in the industrial town of Widnes. Uh, I I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, The sound was notoriously awful due to the uh, the swirling winds, but I'm sure that didn't matter to the tens of thousands in attendance high to the gills on ecstasy, weed, and acid. Um, The Roses' story is unfortunately, like you alluded to, Chris, also a tale of uh, band mismanagement and record label scumbaggery. Uh, is the better best word I can say. Um, unhappy with how much money they were getting from their label Silvertone, the band sought to terminate their contract with them 
which resulted in a five-year legal battle before they could release another album. They eventually did sign with Geffen and released a follow-up in 1994, but by then the Madchester scene and movement was dead. Uh, Their audience had moved on, and that follow-up called Second Coming was pretty much a shit sandwich. (laughs) While while they broke up Mm -hmm. soon afterward, that exquisite debut album has stood the test of time by transcending all the tropes of acid house, rave culture, and all things baggy, quote unquote, with immaculately crafted songs, indelible hooks, and beautiful guitar work. Uh, The Stone Rose's massive impact and influence would be felt even more strongly by the time a new generation of British guitar bands obviously indebted to them would usher in an incredible era of British rock known as Britpop that would be a huge part of the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Yeah, I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Johnny Greenwood is probably influenced heavily by the Stone Roses. I think so too. Uh, I think, yeah, I think a lot of those uh, British guitar gods. uh, Noel Gallagher. yeah, cert, cert, certainly uh, uh, Noel Gallagher was influenced by them. And so uh, they're just an incredible band. I think you could take them out of this period. Yeah, they're they're kind of a creature uh, of of Manchester, but they're not tied explicitly to Manchester. Right. They're not they're not a moment in time band. They they came out with this and they're, they're just like super talented and super assured. Right and super confident and they just came out with this pretty much perfect record uh at the time and so and it really is kind of the blueprint for uh, all things uh british uh really uh, for at least 10 years uh maybe even 15 years yeah and i think they're probably still in the water now yeah uh, for all they did and their versatility and uh you know great guitar players great songwriters uh great producers uh you know just uh they uh, they just had the swagger. You get the sense that they're, they're one of those bands, and there's a few of them in history, that they knew just how good they were. Yeah. And and just, you know, and of course, those are the bands that most fall apart. Right. <laughs> because then it's like, you know, like, like think about the police. The police knew how good they were. The problem was is that uh, they had agreed to a, a formula. Yeah. And all three guys were much, 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 much more talented and better than the formula. Yeah. And they all resented the formula. Yeah. And which means they resented each other. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so that's kind of a similar story here. It's like, it's like, we know how good we are. That's why we hate each other. (laughs) Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a time, uh, tested, uh, tradition and the stone roses, uh, definitely, uh, fell into that. Yeah. No, the the whole Manchester thing. I mean, you really uh, nailed it. It's, uh, Something that I've not, I would like to fill in the holes in my own knowledge of because so much came out of that. Right. The, the more I think about it, even as we're recording this now, uh, think about all the directions and all the genres and all the bands and all the things and uh, all the influences. Just even back here in America, you know, with that, just, you know, back to Chicago, back to LA. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, look, they're they're contemporaries with some of those L.A. bands, some of which we'll talk about later in this episode. Uh, there's a parallel there to be had. Yeah. So I think that some of those waves uh, came stateside. So sure. Good stuff, dude. Good stuff. So we will now go to our next movement of this uh, 
transitional bridge era leading into the fourth golden age of rock. Um, we are going from electronic influenced rock in the UK. We're going to keep one foot in the UK and put one foot back into the US. And we're going to talk about two particular artists, bands, artists, whatever you want to call, who were specifically influenced by the pioneering sounds of industrial music that was getting really big in the underground in the 1980s. Uh, I like to call this segment Industrial Goes Pop. Chris, take it away. Yes, industrial certainly did go pop. And yes, uh, it certainly uh, was something that traveled across the pond from the other side. Uh, yet another British thing that Americans appropriated for their own uh, uh, <laughs> pop, pop, go pop goodness. Yeah. So uh, in some ways, I guess you can say sometimes we all have to take one for the team. Uh, here's the curmudgeonly version of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, here I am and not Arturo explaining why industrial rock going pop was indeed a good thing. Uh, I say that only because I've never been terribly enthusiastic about the albums uh, that uh, laid down the uh, tracks or kind of laid, laid down the railroad tracks uh, that led to the smashing success uh, a few years later of Nine Inch Nails, uh, The Downward Spiral, and secondarily, uh, bands uh, like White Zombie and Rammstein. Uh, specifically here, we're talking about Depeche Mode's uh, Violator, uh, which was the big one, uh, which was preceded, by the way, by uh, 87's Music for the Masses. And then uh, we have Nine Inch Nails' uh, predecessor record, uh, Pretty Hate Machine. Uh, as we've mentioned several times over the life of this podcast, uh, Depeche Mode's Martin Gore uh, basically invented the template for danceable electronic industrial rock in the early 1980s and arguably changed everything. A uh, lot, most, yeah. Yeah, most certainly in Great Britain, uh, with albums like A Broken Frame from 1982 and an album that I personally love, 1984, uh, some, 1984's uh, Some Great Reward. Uh, people that's are people, so how can it be? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that, that was back when things were more, they certainly were industrial, but they were more sort of uh, sort of naked and uh, right. happily danceable. Uh, right. And, you know, as, the, as we go along, uh, that uh, really kind of set the foundation for, one, things to go electronic, obviously, and danceable in rock. But then also set the stage for things to go darker and louder uh, as things went along. Uh, but uh, I mean, even so, the point of this is like for me, I would say that was all a great thing. Uh, you, you go back to the early and mid 80s and you'll find a bunch of those club friendly, edgy albums uh, that without Gore and his bandmates definitely would not exist right uh yeah he he definitely is one of those pioneers uh, uh you know sort of the uh, the 1980s industrial rock beatles uh yeah. Or, yeah dance music beatles yep they uh they they were kind of uh, they led to a tipping point or they were the uh they were the innovators at some point, though, uh, Gore uh, and his bandmates, they started to figure out uh, that putting alluring melodies and some even poppier pop sheen 
on uh, top of all those electronic creations was a very good thing. And yeah. he also figured out that having a handsome front man who could sing his ass off uh, was a good thing too. And and so lo and behold, uh, here came he, the band's Music for the Masses from 1987, which was uh, a definite precursor to the undeniably huge event record of late 89 and 1990, Violator. Uh, seriously, I challenge you to find something that was hotter uh, in rock and roll uh, during during that period, um, there that for about six months, seven eight months, uh, that album uh, owned uh, the universe, and for pretty good reason, uh, because uh, it is strikingly sexy, and it does have several phenomenal singles. Uh, my favorite of these is "Personal Jesus," which I know you've all heard. Uh, yeah. Maybe some of you youngins are more familiar with Johnny Cash's cover, which in some ways speaks to the brilliance of the song. But you think about it at that point, they're so original and so cool. And uh, that song is proof that a wickedly sharp guitar riff and clubby bleeps and blips could coexist wonderfully. Yeah. Uh, you are amazing. Uh, listener probably would vote for uh, enjoy the silence as the mm. best uh, single off of this record. Epic. Uh, because, yeah, it, it is epic, and it is the most popular of this album's volumes. It was the biggest hit uh, from it. And uh, perhaps uh, for a good reason, because what a catchy-ass chorus and awesome uh, vocal uh, by Dave Kahan. Uh, really good stuff. Um, meanwhile, uh, during this period, we also witnessed the arrival of our uh, longtime friend, and uh, er, you know everybody's favorite uh, dark and depressed uh, uh, studio industrial genius Trent Reznor, <laughs> uh, and this is you know, back in as as we knew him uh, uh, then. You know, so you know you could say that uh, without Martin Gore, uh, there wasn't there wouldn't be a Trent Reznor. Yeah, uh, definitely a clear influence you could hear, especially oh, yeah. in, in this phase of Nine Inch Nails before Reznor got really, really heavy with the guitars. Um, oh, um, during yeah. this period, you can hear the Depeche Mode influence for sure. Oh, absolutely. And even, even Reznor is on the record as saying that Depeche Mode is a direct influence. Uh, and so, you know, because this, uh, this period, you know, the songs to me aren't quite there yet uh, on Pretty Hate Machine. Except for head, uh, except for head like a hole. <laughs> well, yeah, no shit. I was going to say that, but <laughs> but basically, uh, what Trent effectively did is he took the Depeche Mode monster and made yeah. it both scarier and somehow more beautiful. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fi figure that one out. Uh, as Arturo said, Pretty Hate Machine is definitely uh, more of a sparse uh, electronic, uh, more danceable, uh, definitely uh, more of a uh, industrial uh, spare uh, record. Uh, now, like I said, you know, we he just said it. Uh, Head like a hole, obviously, is an amazing, groundbreaking pop song. Uh, that's undeniable for me. Uh, the rest, meh. Uh, no matter though. Uh, ultimately, one genius, Martin Gore, begat another, Trent Reznor. And Nine Inch Nails was one of a handful of acts that certainly defined the fourth golden age more uh, than anyone else. I remember by 1994, uh, Reznor had kind of combined uh, his Depeche Mode influence uh, with metal influences and then something that is 
uniquely uh, Reznor uh, by that point. Uh, but these were the precursors. Uh, uh, really great stuff, uh, you know, with the singles from Violator and uh, Head Like a Hole, uh, worth mentioning. Uh, that was a song that even if you hid under the couch, you couldn't avoid. Yeah. Uh, for Especially in 1991. Uh, yeah. It, if I'm not mistaken, they were actually on the original Lollapalooza yes. uh, lineup. And yeah. this will be discussed in the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because 1991. Guess what the big story of 1991 is in, in well, one of the, well, remember, one 1991. Many, many yes. big stories. Yes. Yes. We, that gives you a preview. 1991 is arguably the greatest uh, uh, post-1968 uh, uh, year uh, in the history of rock and roll. Uh, so, Arturo, uh, am I full of shit in saying that Violator is so-so and just uh, dominated by singles and then uh, just a bunch of... Uh, kind of uh, more wanky uh, filler. Uh, yes, yes, you are full of shit by saying that. Um, some of the slower stuff is some of the most beautiful stuff Gore's ever written. Um, I think uh, Halo is great. Sweet is perfection. It's got that tense, that tension to it that is a perfect bridge between world in my eyes and personal Jesus, personal Jesus where the tension gets uh, let off. Um, here's the thing. I mean, I, I violator is obviously one of the greatest albums ever made and it, this, it's kind of objective at this point, but I really, really love the previous one as well. Um, music for the masses has never let me down again, which is that, that, yeah. that great Anton Corbin directed black and white grainy video a song that Smashing Pumpkins did a pretty good job covering. Yes, uh, they did. Uh, uh, several several years later, uh, Behind the Wheel, which is like one of the one of the the most overt sex drenched songs uh, Depeche Mode ever did. Um, great track on that. Uh, Music for the masses actually really was like the the server. It served up Violator. Oh, it was, yeah. It, it, it was the album that really set it up. People forget there was during this Music for the Masses tour that Depeche Mode sold out the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. <laughs> There's always a good time to be found within the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly community. That is our invite-only private Facebook group that Arturo and I launched in December. So far, it's been a spirited romp through this podcast's decidedly bent worldview and, as it turns out, through those of our members as well. Now, is Iron Maiden a good example of a band that blended musel mastery and pop accessibility to an acceptable degree? Well, one of our members sure thinks so, and we gave him the safe space to do it, damn it. If bold opinions and thoughts and passionate defenses of rock and roll are your jam, then the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly community is for you. Come find us. And we will probably let you in. Uh, so uh, now uh, we we go from uh, British influence uh, affecting America to uh, a Los Angeles band uh, that kind of affected everybody after it. Uh, yes, in, at, at least in the, among bands that uh, considered themselves indie rock or at least right. in or indie hard rock uh, bands. Uh, remember in 1987, 1988, Los Angeles, uh, Guns N' Roses, and still uh, Motley Crue uh, were ruling the roost. Uh, but here came uh, this other amazing band uh, bubbling under the surface that would soon explode 
Yes. Uh, as uh, the 90s uh, got started and uh, segued into 91. Yeah. Arturo, uh, lead us through our discussion of Jane's addiction. Absolutely. And a band that I, I would say is better than both Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Anyway, well, uh, <laughs> I would call this segment the other dangerous L.A. band. Uh, as you alluded to, Chris, when GNR emerged in 1987 with that classic debut album, Appetite for Destruction, they were touted as a grittier, dirtier, more bad boyish version of that, you know, the cheesy sophomore glam metal that was dominating the rock radio airwaves and MTV at the time. The fact is that Guns N' Roses actually came from the same sleazy Sunset Strip ghetto that bands like Motley Crue and Poison came from. Uh, they They had the same ambitions for mainstream crossover domination, which they achieved, and then some, more than any of those other bands. Um, they traded in the same visual aesthetic. They followed uh, many of the same rock and roll cliches. They were just a little heavier and weren't afraid to give a nod to a first wave 1970s punk. That's what differentiated a GNR from the other glam yeah, metal bands. And, and they also uh, they had some uh, Rolling Stones boogie woogie to them. So. Sure. Sure. They're an eccentric band. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, at least Appetite for Destruction is one of my favorite uh, yeah. albums of all time. But uh, that is a uh, slight deviation from this conversation. Yes. Uh, yes. Because, again, we're talking about the contrast and contrast here with what Jane's and yeah. uh, Perry Farrell and Dave Navarro right. and, the, and, the, and the boys were doing at that point. Right. Yeah, because lurking on the other side of the proverbial tracks was this other darker LA scene that was as far removed from the motorcycle bad boy strippers and whores ethos as was possible. This LA music scene was more of an art scene, albeit an art scene seemingly made up of art school dropouts, junkie poets and ghetto philosophizers, but still an art scene. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This scene uh, uh, that wasn't afraid to embrace punk in all of its aspects. It embraced post-punk, goth, glam rock, prog rock, uh, and metal, only of the 1970s Zeppelin Sabbath vintage. Um, In short, this scene was a true alternative to what was going on in Hollywood. And it was this scene that gave birth to Jane's Addiction, a band that arguably defined the words alternative rock more than any other American band of its time. Uh, Moreover, they were one of the few bands of the decade who had a thrillingly, addictively unique, original sound all of their own. And at the beginning of the new decade, they became one of the most popular and exciting new bands in the country, helping pave the way for the fourth golden age of rock. Yeah. All right. Here's the thing. It's really hard for younger rock music fans to really grasp how thoroughly new and otherworldly Jane's Addiction were when they first came out, roughly around the same time as GNR. Um, For as good as Guns N' Roses may have been, they were downright orthodox and austere by comparison. You know? um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, with GNR, you could always play a game of spot the influence. 
Hmm. You know, okay, that's Aerosmith here. That's the Sex Pistols there. A little bit of Stones boogie woogie there, etc. Right? Um, with Jane's Addiction, their sound and their songs were so out of nowhere that while you could detect the subgenre influences, punk, metal, prog rock, glam rock, goth, post-punk, whatever, you could never say they were directly cribbing from any other band. Um, yeah, some Eric Avery bass lines were a little Joy Division-y. Some Dave Navarro guitar passages were a little Zeppelin-esque, but that's about it. You know, and in lead singer Perry Farrell, they had a mind-blowingly charismatic frontman who uh, sang in an endearing child's whine in one minute and changed to a mongrel dog banshee the next minute. Oh, yeah, uh, that 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 about covers it. Uh, Perry <laughs> Farrell is is one of the uh, most uh, singularly unique and uh, eccentric uh, vocalists. I think ever in, in rock and roll that, uh, that if his melody and, uh, if the, uh, if the, the bed of music, if the arrangement was supposed to be floating on a cloud, uh, he made sure that you knew that they, y'all were supposed to be floating on a cloud. I mean, he had, (laughs) he, he had this, uh, brilliant ability to capture the aesthetic of what James was doing. And, and eccentric is a good word because, uh, like, you know, like you said, I mean, it was a, uh, Navarro had his own language. Uh, yeah. Stephen Stephen Perkins was like a mind blowingly great uh, drummer, and then yeah, Farrell, uh, the cult of personality with him, and Navarro for that matter, as we right. find as we would find out uh, as the fourth golden age, uh, yeah, uh, unfolded. But no, just just good stuff. Yeah. Uh, that said, uh, take us through the uh, the rest of yeah. uh, the gestation of uh, Jane's as yeah. an influence here. Well, let me just mention also that Perry Farrell also had an underrated observational wit in his lyrics that could run the gamut from astute socio-political commentary to the deterioration of the human condition to coping with childhood trauma to just affecting wide-eyed romanticism. There was a real depth and, and range um, to his to his lyrics that a lot of people, in my opinion, Uh, don't give them enough credit for. But anyway, back to Jane's. Um, They already had a major label deal in place with Warner Brothers when they released their first album, uh, which was essentially a self-titled live album on the small LA independent label Triple X. And it was kind of done as a thank you to the hardcore fan base that had made them one of the most talked about uh, bands in the LA scene. It was recorded for only $4,000 and it sounds like it. But not even that cheap sound quality can undermine the sheer ferocity of the band's attack and the startling originality of their sound. It takes a band with balls and dexterity to do an acoustic version of the Stone Sympathy for the Devil and make it rock like holy hell. Oh yeah. Um, oh, the yeah. same the same with their rousing rendition of the of the Velvet Underground's rock and roll. Um, but Jane's was no mere covers band. Uh, their sound was unique and so was their songwriting. And when nothing shocking, their proper studio debut album finally came out in 1988. The underground alternative rock scene had a new standard bearer band. Remember, 
by this time, REM had already crossed over to the rock mainstream. So, you know, alternative rock needed a new standard bearer. So um, with very little radio airplay and only late night MTV exposure, the album went platinum by the following year, thanks to word of mouth enthusiasm. And it's easy to see why. Uh, nothing shocking sees the arrival of a band fully formed with all their weirdness, their sexiness, their darkness, and their exotic mystery pulling the listener in like a David Lynch film. You know, for those of you who are into David Lynch, yeah. uh, you have songs like Ocean Size and Mountain Song, which are guitar roaring anthems for outsider freaks. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pigs in Zen is coruscating funk rock and a virulent castigation of police brutality. Uh, Ted Just Admit It is epic shape-shifting shape, uh, shape prog rock as done by Built to Spill on Crack. That's how I oh, describe yeah. it. Uh, and, 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 and I'll just say it uh, here that Ted Just Admit It is one of those uh, paradigm-shifting songs that changes yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. Just, to be, you know, the, the tempo changes, the... Uh, sure. You know the the arrangement, the sort of the the original rhythm uh, uh, menace, and then right. followed by just the absolutely whacked, like you said, whacked out uh, psychedelic yeah. uh, playing by yeah. uh, Navarro. I yeah. will say it, it's one of the great uh, quote unquote green test songs of all time. Oh yeah, Jane's Addiction have always been a green a green band for me, uh, but not just the heavy, crazy psychedelic, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, spin you on your ass shit. They also have the, that this album also has the timeless acoustic ballad Jane Says, which is one of their signature songs and one of the most heartbreaking portrayals of heroin addiction uh, ever put on tape. Um, forget being one of the best rock albums of the 1980s. Nothing Shocking stands as one of the four or five defining American alternative rock albums of all time and should be on anyone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And it was left out of Rolling Stone's 2020 list, which pisses me off. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, well, yeah. That, that's <laughs> something that we're going to be saying, I think a lot uh, over the next year in this podcast, <laughs> that, that, that was just, a that was a strange list. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right that, uh, you know, this idea that when you say alternative rock, uh, Perry Farrell and Dave Navarro are certain, probably the poster boys for that. I think Jane's right. addiction uh, really uh, set the, uh, they, they put the skin, uh, on it uh, during this period. And uh, uh, one of the things that's always kind of blown me away uh, about uh, Nothing Shocking and Jane Says is they had a, a spirit that they didn't always play the instrumentation straightforward. They weren't they weren't afraid to experiment uh, either uh, with the instruments themselves. I mean, I mean, Jane Says it's this wonderful, beautiful uh, ballad about uh, the uh, the the dark side of, of heroin addiction. Meanwhile, uh, it's driven by steel Calypso drums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, uh, then not that, that, you know, this album was not a, a uh, exactly, it wasn't all, like you said, it wasn't that psychedelic and it wasn't those sort of guitar, uh, you know, uh, King Kong uh, uh, riff uh, workouts. You also had stuff like idiots rule. Uh, which yeah. is just hilarious with the uh, fishbone and uh, flea and uh, other friends. So yeah, uh, wonderful, wonderful record. While Jane didn't quite better their debut with the, the 1990 follow-up ritual de lo habitual, they came damn close and they had a huge hit single 
one year before Nirvana kicked the doors down for the alternative nation. Um, kaleidoscopically eclectic is the term that can properly use to describe this album, Ritual de la Habitual, as well as, like you said, slyly psychedelic. Uh, the first half contains the turbocharged stuff. You know, uh, you have the manic stop-start psychotic rocker of, you know, stop. One of, the, uh, one of the great bass intros in the history of rock, bringing in the defiant riff monster, Ain't No Right. And of course, you have the big hit, the gleefully nihilistic Ben Caught Stealing, which you mm-hmm. all should know, with yep. its a, a kleptomaniac confession backed by an undeniable groove tapestry of interwining acoustic and electric guitars. The second half has the expansive pretty stuff. Uh, three Days, uh, Farrell's biographical story of a weekend-long menage a trois, um, mm-hmm. is beyond epic to the point of cinematic, with its uh, multiple sections immaculately layered in a buildup that makes sense. That rare 10-minute track that actually seems too short. It's like yeah. Ted just admit it, but just expanded. You know, yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah, no, yeah. no one would accuse them of uh, delving into minimalism with uh, with three days. <laughs> no, not at all. And of course, then you have the elegiacally beautiful classic girl um, showcasing Farrell's underrated hard on sleeve romanticism and guitarist Dave Navarro's knack for uh, awe inspiring chord progressions. Um, it's an undeniable classic of its time or any other. And it's the album that set Jane's Addiction up to be a Guns N' Roses style arena rock band. Alas, <laughs> for yep. as alternative as Jane's Addiction was, they fell victim to rock cliches and tropes as well. Infighting over musical direction, drug addictions, and most cripplingly, uh, Perry Farrell's insistence on owning 50% of all the publishing royalties for writing the lyrics alone, plus a quarter of the remaining half for writing the music, a move that earns Farrell an esteemed spot in the Rock and Roll Dick Moves Hall of Fame, uh, (laughs) ensured that the band would have a short lifespan. Of course, the other three guys were pissed off at him. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it and it always amazes me that uh, what is it like three or four times now that uh, Navarro <laughs> and Perkins have actually uh, come back for reunion yeah. tours and, yeah. and reunion albums because yeah. if if anybody if there's any three guys in the world that should hate Perry Farrell and want to throw him under a train. It's, those uh, it's, three. it's Dave Navarro, Steve Perkins, and Eric Avery. Uh, yeah, because because uh, Farrell was out there, and I, he was pretty much publicly, gleefully trying to fuck them over and saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the genius, and I should make all the money." You know, I it's know. Kind of, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's even more blatant than Robbie Robertson taking all the publishing. Uh, you know, from, <laughs> from, from the from band. The band. <laughs> yeah, I mean, e- even even more blatant. But you know, you gotta you gotta admit. I mean. Uh, Perry Farrell was a cocky motherfucker, uh, yeah. but he, uh, but in, in terms of influence, that's a good thing. Maybe not in terms of personal relationships, but in terms of influence, uh, you know, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's a great thing. And so, yeah. yep. Jane's, uh, <laughs> now, dur- during this period, again, uh, they had that run up and, you know, you said that you said the perfect thing that, you know, Ben caught stealing, uh, much like head, like a hole, you couldn't avoid it if you h- hit under a couch. 
uh, there in 1990. It set the stage for them to be absolutely enormous. And then came the implosion. Right. Uh, so uh, I've always kind of thought like what what would have happened if Janes had stayed together? They probably they probably would have ended up sounding like porno for pyros, <laughs> you know. All right, now another band that was just as important uh, uh, ushering in as part part of ushering in the fourth golden age of rock, but in in a kind of retro way. Chris. Yep, and uh, we can say that there ain't no depression here, <laughs> although. Uh, in a way, yeah, there kind of was, but uh, they did it in a in a more uh, gleeful uh, way. Right. So anyway, so uh, they were, uh, while not the first band to explore what punk and country music would sound like in a violent collision. Yeah. Uncle Tupelo. Yeah. Uh, featuring a young uh, Jeff Tweedy. Right. Uh, and Jay Farrar uh, emerge uh, from the American West, American Midwest during this period with a sound that melded that energy of punk rock, the heaviness of 1970s rock, uh, echoes of Neil and the Stones and uh, other bands of that period, especially, and the pain soul of country music, uh, if not in sound, at least in spirit, uh, right. you know, folks like uh, Merle Haggard. And yeah. they created a sound that would be pivotal uh, in the alt country and country rock development developments of the 1990s uh essentially if it reeked of americana uh you can trace it back to the influence of uh of uncle tupelo and their album uh from 1990 or no depression right uh really neat trick uh really neat trick and remember these these guys are from chicago uh they are not you know they are not in arkansas uh, they are not in Bakersfield, California. They are in Chicago. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, they were from a suburb of Chicago, weren't they? Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's well, Chicago land. Uh, let's call it Chicago land. Uh, and so, yeah, even more pronounced. They were in the suburbs. Uh, a couple of suburban kids doing uh, this uh, this kind of thing. So, you know, again, I think that that album in 1990, it's a perfect uh, sub moniker uh, for what you could refer to this musical style as no depression right because while the songs and theme could be contemplated wistful and agonized uh the music was just so consistently joyous and bowel shaking uh in its intensity and uh in its uh in a, there's a in a way there's a celebratory mood i mean even in uh the more sort of low key uh stuff on this uh, especially I've always been a fan of the title song, uh, no depression. Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, and, uh, yet it's still edgy. Uh, it, I guess you could call it an acoustic ditty, uh, but it yearns uh, for a peaceful afterlife. Right. Now are the allusions to, uh, the book of revelations, no darkness, only light passage, uh, actually sincere. Uh, are they snarky and ironic? Uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, it works, uh, and it's absolutely incredible. Uh, elsewhere on No Depression, uh, you find them uh, meshing gnarly guitars with banjos pretty seamlessly. So yeah. they're, rock, they're rocking balls, but hey, here come the banjos, and wow, yeah. it actually works. And again, they paved the way uh, for a lot of uh, these quote-unquote Americana bands. I hate that term, but yeah, it you know think about 
the some of the folks that came after them, you know, the Jayhawks, uh, yeah. which you know in 1995 uh, release uh, uh, a pretty uh, strong, uh, almost masterpiece. Uh, they in some ways paved the way for the uh, breakout uh, into, uh, if not mainstream consciousness, at least uh, critical circle consciousness of Lucinda Williams. Yeah, uh, and in some ways you could say that. Uh, their influence, because of some of the stuff that they were combining, uh, could have paved the way for some of the the harder edge bluegrass uh, yeah. that that came yeah. out at the tail end of this fourth golden age. Uh, and so, uh, it also goes without saying, of course, that if Jeff Tweedy and Jay Farrar never fall out uh, with one another, uh, we don't get Wilco, right? Uh, which probably is, well, I would say, one of the four. Uh, best bands of this here fourth golden age of rock. Uh, they're yeah, right, maybe. right there, right there near the top. And so this is a as far as, of, as far as American bands. Yeah, I mean, I would put oh, yeah. e- easily top ten. Yeah, easily. Yeah, uh, I would put them even higher than that. I mean, there's only a handful of bands off the top of my head. You know, like Nirvana and Pavement and uh, uh, bands like Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, uh, and a, a few others. Pearl Jam. <laughs> per, yeah, Pearl Jam. Uh, hello, Ronan. Chris, I'm glad you mentioned Lucinda Williams because, like you said, she's one of the alt-country, country rock artists that Uncle Tupelo opened the door for in the 1990s. It's ironic, however, uh, because Lucinda is a decade and a half older than the guys in Uncle Tupelo, all of whom were in their early 20s in 1990. Whatever. Anyway, Lucinda herself had flitted around the fringes of country music until her critically acclaimed self-titled album in 1988. That's the one that had uh, Passionate Kisses and Change the Locks, you know, covered eight years later. I might add to Excellent Effect by Tom Petty. But uh, um, once, once the success of Tupelo essentially created this uh, slightly larger than niche market for uh, country-inspired artists who wanted nothing to do with the Nashville establishment. Several bands and artists took off. You mentioned the Jayhawks, uh, but really most notably Lucinda Williams, and we should note um, who, who, starting in 1988, within this you know prelude bridge a span of years leading up to the fourth golden age of rock um starting in 88 went on a 20-year run of albums that essentially cemented her as one of the greatest roots music american songwriters who ever lived here's the thing when uncle tupelo started out especially in the no depression it was basically jay farrar's band he was the main guy he was the the main singer the main songwriter he would let tweety have a few songs here and there by the time of 1993's anodyne which is uncle tupelo's final album not only had tweety staked up 50 percent of basically the band's stewardship he at this point he'd become a better songwriter um oh, like yeah. if, you, if, if you listen to anodyne from 93 you can hear like the the the, the you, you can hear the roots of wilco already growing uh on that album with songs like new madrid and the long cut and all that but anyway mm-hmm. but it's just it's interesting how like you know this the band started out as one guy's band and then like tweedy just started growing 
in, you know, just just exponentially as a songwriter. Yeah, that's and, that's and fair. Had, had had Uncle Tupelo not broken up, Tweety would have taken it over, and that would have become Wilco. <laughs> oh yeah, pretty pretty much. I think that's a yeah. fair statement because, but yeah. you can hear. And like you said, even in 1990, you know, Tweedy hadn't developed uh, his right. and, and really fleshed out what became his voice and yeah. the amazing voice of, of Tweedy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, even like, you can hear pangs of it. There's in, in some ways that he kind of started out uh, having more fun. I think he was right. having fun figuring out who he was. And so, yeah, you know, so more, some of the more jaunty stuff uh, yeah. and some of the, the more sort of, uh, blatantly countryish uh, stuff yeah. that was experimenting with the banjo and the, and the, uh, the, the twangy stuff. Uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's where Tweety comes from, but you can hear that. Um, it's almost as if Jay Bennett is like hanging outside the studio, like kind of peeking his, uh, peeking his nose, uh, uh in, in, in the door. <laughs> when am I going to get in here? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, I'll show you how it's done, you know? And, uh, yeah. yeah. And imagine, well, that, that's a, a, a picture I hadn't had in my mind until now. Imagine Jay Bennett being involved with uncle Tupelo. Yeah. Uh, for those that, of you who don't know, Jay, for those of you out there who don't know, Jay Bennett is the late great, uh, lead guitarist of Wilco. And when he was in Wilco, he was basically Jeff Tweedy's number two guy. He was like the, the, the sounding board. He basically sculpted Wilco's sound. Tweedy wrote the songs. Jay Bennett sculpted the sound. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess you could call and and thank you, Arturo, for uh, being the adult supervision. And uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm 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 speaking in code and uh, uh, casual listener. Uh, yes, uh, go check out uh, uh, Tweedy and Bennett's uh, work. So we've uh, now. We're going to uh, travel from the suburbs of Chicago with the Twangy Boys, and we're going to go east to Boston with all the college boys. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Boston, you never really think of as, at least to initially, as a big uh, rock town or a, a, a huge rock town of influence. Uh, I mean, let's face it, when you think about Boston, you think about Boston. And right. uh, you think about Aerosmith, uh, I mean, pretty much would be top of mind. However, uh, during this precursor to the fourth golden age of rock, some of the most important and influential bands are bubbling at the same time in uh, in that 95 corridor in Massachusetts. Arturo, lead us through the massive influence of Bostonia. Yeah, Boston Pops and Rocks. It didn't get the glowing media coverage that Seattle got, but that's understandable. Boston never really produced its version of Nirvana or Pearl Jam, you know. Um, but the bands that did emerge, especially the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr., had a distinct impact and influence on several of the alt-rock titans of the 1990s. And for those of you taking notes out there, and you should have been taking notes all throughout this episode, here Damn is a straight. roundup. Here is a roundup of essential listening alternative slash indie rock from the Boston and near Boston scene that helped inform the rock revolution of the 1990s. Shall I start, Chris? You shall. Okay. Let's start with the Pixies. Um, and, and the Pixies... And particularly their albums, Surferosa from 1988 and Doolittle from 1989. The Pixies may be the most important and influential out of all the Boston area bands 
of this era with their awe-inspiringly original blend of punk rock fury, surf music from hell guitar stabs, peekaboo moments of thrash metal, um, highly subversive implementation of 1960s pop rock, and surrealist to the point of disturbing lyricism. Uh, Singer-guitarist Frank Black, real name Charles Thompson, had a lot of issues, whether they were inadequacies with women or a macabre interest in dismembered body parts (laughs) across in the lyrics. But the Pixies' refreshing mutant rock gave the crazy lyrics a musical backdrop to make you want to lose yourself in. Uh, Their debut EP from 1987, Come On Pilgrim, already laid the basic Pixies blueprint bare. Uh, Key tracks, Nimrod's Son and The Holiday Song. But their debut full-length album, Surferosa from 1988, inverts rock's DNA in a way that made one think the genre had been reborn from scratch. Uh, The classic formula of slow, low verse and loud rocking chorus that millions of bands copied in the 1990s, Nirvana being just one notable example, is practically here, laid here. Although Led Zeppelin may have something to say about that, but that's another discussion. Um, and it's laid bare here with the song Gigantic, uh, the, 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 Kim, the, the one Kim Deal uh, song. Oh, yeah, song yeah great song. Yeah, you yeah. can hear the breeders uh, yeah. being born exactly uh, in that song. Totally. Other songs like Break My Body, Broken Face, (laughs) and Something Against You rock with a fierceness that once and for all eroded the distinction between punk and thrash metal. Uh, Produced by Steve Albini, and it sounds like it. No Uh, shit. uh, His bone-dry production leaves plenty of space for Dave Lovering's pummeling drums uh, to take center stage. The Pixies went for a cleaner, more professional production on their second album, 1989's Doolittle, but in no way did it water their sound down. In fact, the band took it as an opportunity to spread their wings stylistically. You have themes such as torture, death, and Mm -hmm. biblical violence, and all those themes meant it was just another lyrical day <laughs> at the office for the Pixies. Yeah, but I was going to say, uh, <laughs> B- B- Black Francis was uh, was not subtle, and uh, <laughs> he he had a lot to say, and uh, he was pissed off, and uh, yeah, not 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 a fan of the church in the least. No, he wasn't. But you do have the sublime pop of "Here Comes Your Man." Yes, uh, and it, and it captures the band at their most charmingly and unironically romantic uh you got the soaring mid-tempo monkey gone to heaven which was a modest college radio hit and perhaps the the band's most anthemic song and then you have debaser my favorite with its lyrics based on luis buñuel's disturbing avant-garde film un chien andalou uh which is uh, an extreme close-up of a woman's eye being sliced with a razor is featured in this film anyway the song debaser is downright giddy in his description of sur- violent surrealism or surrealist violence as it gallops along with one of alternative rock's most iconic and revered uh, guitar lines. Now, I mentioned Jane's Addiction's Nothing Shocking is one of alternative rock's most important and defining albums. 
both Surfer Rosa and Doolittle belong right up there with it as well. Uh, and both of them being two of the greatest albums of all time in any genre. Um, Doolittle is generally regarded as the band's high watermark. I personally am more partial to Surfer Rosa's Rough Edges. What say you, Chris? Uh, I agree. I, 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 I'm also a bigger fan of uh, Surfer Rosa, although I will admit, I mean, uh, Doolittle does have, I mean, some of the popular stuff on it. Uh, huge fan of Debaser. Uh, yeah. I always love the, the uh, Unchen Andalusia. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is just kind of, uh, shows the, the attitude and the, the cleverness that they had, uh, lyrically, or at least that, uh, Frank Black, uh, did, but yeah, no, uh, huge, huge influence. Uh, I, that sort of soft, loud, uh, dynamic and yeah. that sort of, uh, edge, uh, that they had, uh, really sets up, uh, well, obviously direct influence on Nirvana, uh, and then much lesser bands like Bush, uh, much, much, much lesser bands. But, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, but but the soft, the soft loud uh, is definitely a staple of grunge and uh, a staple of you know, like even Weezer. Uh, sure. You know, I mean, these are all bands that uh, without the Pixies wouldn't exist. I mean, they're kind of right. like uh, for this sort of uh, uh, mid tempo or bash out rock uh thing or genre or aesthetic, uh, right. there is much of a, uh, groundbreaker as Depeche Mode, uh, uh, for these folks. I, I would argue that. And I mean, Weezer's sweater songs an outright rip off of the Pixies. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No shit. I mean, well, half, half that album is yeah. The sweater song and in a way so, uh, say it ain't so. And, uh, in the garage and a few of those others are, are pretty much all, uh, not Pixies ripoffs. They're Pixies homages. I will yeah. never. Call, I won't call anything off the Blue Album uh, a ripoff because it's sure, one of my fa- sure. it's one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. Uh, even back in 1994, I was like, "Well, this sounds pretty special." Uh, yeah. Be that as it may, um, I don't want to make the Pixies stand out too much as sort of the seminal uh, influence of grunge and collegiate rock in the 90s because there is another Boston band. Yes that stood alongside them that have uh, just as much, uh, especially in terms of guitar godness uh, that uh, uh, several uh, people in the nineties aspired to. And uh, that, that sets us up to talk about dinosaur junior. Right. You know, they came out of the college town of Amherst, Massachusetts. Dinosaur junior made it okay for indie and alternative rock to embrace the tropes of classic 1960s and 70s rock. Basically, their formula was this and continues to be to this day. Punk rock noise and aggression plus classic rock guitar soloing plus folk rock song structures. You know? yep. um, while their self-titled debut album from 1985 hinted at singer-guitarist uh, Jay Mascus's gifts, it was the trio's second album on the legendary indie label SST Records, You're Living All Over Me from 1987, that made the band's reputation as indie legends and continues to define the band uh, to this day. If you don't know anything about this band at all, a first-time listen through this album would lead you to believe this is a Seattle grunge band. <laughs> I'll yeah, be pretty a- much. Albeit a very melodic one. Um, That's how startlingly ahead of the game Dinosaur Jr. were. 
as pioneers of what came to be known as the alternative rock sound. You have songs like Sludge Feast and The Lung, which uh, resurrected the noise and bombast of vintage heavy guitar rock and soloing uh, from a decade before, but replaced the macho bravado with a smarter, more sensitive indie rock sensibility. Uh, The meditative sludge rock of Tar Pit isn't just a showcase for Mascus's singular guitar work. It's also the track that best exemplifies his affecting slacker drawl as a vocalist. Uh, The next album, Bug from 1988, also on SST, is a much better and cleaner produced album than its predecessor, despite being slightly uneven in the songwriting department. Nevertheless, some of Dinosaur Jr.'s most enduring songs are on this record, none other than Freak Scene, one of the band's three or four most well-known songs. And what a good friend of mine um, uh, from back in the U.S. described as Neil Young and Crazy Horse with punk rock boosters up their asses. Uh, It contains one of the most blazing guitar solo codas in the history of the genre of rock and roll and remains arguably one of the 50 greatest rock singles of all time. Um, They signed on to a major label soon afterward and would go on to produce one of the most consistent and rewarding discographies in all of rock. Chris, Dinosaur. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, Dinosaur Jr. is interesting because remember they broke out with uh, albums like Where You Been and yeah. uh, uh, some of some of those things. And right. where uh, at that point, uh, Jay Mascus is more comfortable or at least uh, his virtuosity was right. more out in front. And right. when we think of Dinosaur Jr., at least uh, folks that come into Dinosaur Jr. from that entry point uh, right. would think of Mascus as being kind of gu- guitar goddish, and you get into those uh, really slinky uh, leads and kind of the weird uh, time signatures and the croak and all of that. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, let's go explore the early catalog. And it's like, whoa, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, because uh, you really get the sense of just how influential they are. I mean, for instance, yeah. uh, with. Uh, Sludge Feast and Iron Lung, uh, those songs, you can hear, when you hear those songs, you can hear uh, Certainly Built to Spill, Smashing yep. Pumpkins, Slater Kenny, uh, yeah. arguably Soundgarden, but not really, but at least those first three bands. Uh, yeah. Slater Kenny, Built to Spill, and Smashing Pumpkins are born in those two songs. I mean, yeah. it's just undeniable that uh, how much of an influence uh, that was. And and I can just imagine in 1988 uh, how yeah. uh, striking uh, that kind of thing would have been. Uh, you know, the only precursor to that might have been sort of the progier uh, stuff. I mean, yeah. it kind of harkens back to the to the mid 70s. I mean, obviously, maybe not like King Crimson uh, per right. se. But it does right. have uh, it, it does uh, have that. And so, yeah, Mascus is is very clever and. Uh, again, I think that they, as much as anyone, you, you made the comment at, at the beginning. I mean, if you first hear them, you'd think they were a Seattle band or at least those, uh, you know, yeah. you're living all over me and bug. Uh, right. You would think they were uh, from Seattle, which uh, does a sort of lead in that. Uh, certainly they're more influential on the grunge scene than Jimi Hendrix or Hart. So 
any anything else about Boston that we should know? A couple more period. bands. A couple more bands briefly. The next one is a band called Throwing Muses. Um, and specifically their 1989 album, Hunk Papa. Um, when Throwing Muses emerged from Rhode Island uh, in the mid-1980s, they were a dual female-fronted band with Kristen Hirsch and Tanya Donnelly, both on guitars and vocals. They may have been the brainiest and most leaning toward an acquired taste of all the Boston area bands, of which they certainly became once they moved there by the time of their first album. Um, weird time signatures with the drummer playing with no cymbals, unexpected chord progressions, and surreal lyrics depicting mental illness and the nuances of personal relationships. They stood out among the New England bands of the time. Their sound was, and remains, really hard to pin down. Uh, definitely not punk, certainly not post-punk, and far away from New Wave, their originality really lent itself to them being one of the first truly alternative bands um, in the U.S. Uh, after three EPs and two albums in five years, that well, they received wide uh, and those they received widespread widespread critical acclaim. But um, and the however, the band in their original incarnation hit their creative peak with this album, Hunk Papa, uh, in '89. Uh, infusing their music with more accessible melodies didn't dilute their sound. In, in fact, they enhanced it and gave it an extra layer of depth and dimension, providing the group their most successful album yet at that time. Um, the shape-shifting rocker B-B-E-A uh, is a not-so-subtle dig at conventional motherhood, while the single Dizzy, with its spiky groove and Triumphant Chorus is a not-so-subtle dig on the cliché mating rituals between man and woman. Um, ever since Donnelly left the band in 1991 to form her own band, Belly, uh, Throwing Muses have pretty much remained uh, Hirsch's musical vehicle, usually as a trio. But uh, Hunk Papa remains the high point of the band's widely loved original lineup and uh, one that proved an inspiration in the coming decade for dozens of bands, um, especially female bands, who would delve into the kind of cerebral, spiky indie rock that Throwing Muses crafted. Oh, sure. And in, in some respects, I mean, maybe not uh, in terms of volume, but in terms of that sort of uh, intellectual bent, you know, Maybe they're a little bit of a forerunner to Riot Girl. Uh, sure. I guess you could make that argument. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll say about them uh, that's a little bit refreshing. Uh, well, first off, Kristen Hirsch and Tana, Tanya Donnelly, it should be uh, mentioned, were stepsisters. So yeah. if, if you're wondering where the chemistry came from, that might have had something to do with it. But it's also refreshing to that there was an actual band uh, born in Rhode Island that was actually from Rhode Island and weren't going to the art school. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the talking heads and whoever else. But yeah, th these this was a bona fide uh, uh, Rhode Island band. And so. Uh, so is Lightning Bolt, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The two, yeah, the, the two great uh, Rhode Island bands are uh, are throwing muses and. and uh, <laughs> and lightning bolt. Uh, yeah, I just, I just got this picture of like Tanya Donnelly and uh, uh, Kristen Hirsch like fronting a, a, a lightning bolt song. Uh, yeah, 
yeah, that 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 that's one of those uh, uh, kind of like hearkening back to uh, Conan's "If They Made It" uh, yeah. kind of you know segment. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, you know, go 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 figure. Uh, but uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, throwing music. So there again, we have uh, we're, it's a growing swell to show you that that eh, you know, uh, ma- the, the the mass holes. Uh, had uh, had some some uh, uh, heavy influencers, and so yeah, uh, and, they, and they had one more band. Yes, um, they did. Which honestly, I'm not a huge fan of, but I got to mention them, and that's the Lemonheads. Uh, the Lemonheads are one of those Boston area bands that would eventually find more mainstream success in the 1990s, in the fourth golden age of rock. Uh, with the albums It's a Shame About Ray and Come On, Feel the Lemonheads. Now, like I said before, I have to confess something. I'm not much of a Lemonheads fan. There are a handful of songs of theirs that I like, but for the most part, to me, they were just lightweight jangle pop, kind of a watered-down REM without the consistent quality in songwriting to pull it off. And (laughs) this period saw a lot of American bands to whom you could ascribe the watered down REM tag. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, As we mentioned earlier in the episode, yes, R- yeah. you know, R- R- REM. If, if you weren't trying to ape REM, you probably weren't, uh, weren't a, a white rock and roll uh, band that appealed to college kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in this and era. also the other thing I, that I didn't like, I didn't like about the, the, the Lemonheads is that Evan Dando, the singer, guitarist, front man, he had this slacker stoner persona that, to me personally lacked real edge to it, you know, nevertheless, nevertheless, if you're going to be, if we, the curmudgeons are going to be completists about the Boston or Boston area music scene during the mid to late 1980s, the Lemonheads have to be represented. Their earlier records were a little more rocking. And I mean, just a little (laughs) than the middle of the road, mid tempo gin blossoms ish soft rock. They would be known for if you're interested, 1989's Lick, the album, is the last album with their original lineup and considered the best period of this band. And 1990's Lovey is their major label debut and kind of set the stage for the crossover success they would have later on. How do you feel about the Lemonheads, Chris? Uh, about the same. Uh, a couple of amazing singles. Uh, it's a shame about Ray uh, being one of those. And... Uh, a few, a uh, few others uh, that got them on MTV and got them, uh, you know, got them some serious play. Uh, Into your arms, obviously, is probably yeah. the most well-known song. And so, if you just go by the hits, uh, great. Uh, if you go by the albums, meh. And yeah. uh, and then you know, Evan Dando uh, obviously got a lot of attention for uh, reasons that had nothing to do with music. Uh, he know. was a good-looking young man. Yes. <laughs> anyway. There you go, Boston. We haven't forgotten you. On this episode, Chris and I did a forensic investigation into the bands, artists, albums, events, and movements of the mid to late 1980s that informed and led to the alternative slash indie rock revolution that ushered in the fourth golden age of rock. On the next episode, Chris and I will zero in on the ground zero year of this incredible era, 1991. Grunge enters the pop cultural lexicon. Some of the biggest bands in rock reinvent themselves in unusual and surprising ways. 
The UK and Ireland give us era-defining and transcendently influential classics. New subgenres are born. Generation X gets its very own traveling Woodstock. And old-style heavy metal tries to make its last stand in the face of rock's tectonic plates shifting. Join us next episode for the scintillating second installment of our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. Yep. And uh, so now... uh... It's kind of it's kind of interesting that the Lemonheads end up being the run up to this band uh, that we're going <laughs> to talk about uh, next, because, you know, that's kind of like, uh, you know, putting an Ed, an Ed Wood movie next to Citizen Kane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In some ways. And so, uh, Arturo, uh, give us an, an initial setup and then I'll take it from there about uh, Sonic Youth. Ah, uh, yes. Sonic Youth. Wow. One of my all-time favorite bands, and this segment is basically from no wave to tidal wave, is what I call it. Um, Sonic Youth evolving from interesting, noisy art punks to sonic visionaries and flag bearers of a new kind of rock. And there was an interesting transition that they went through. Chris, walk us through that. Absolutely. So, uh, Sonic Youth... Uh, is less of an underground art punk band and more of what we can call a collective of noise painters. Sure. Uh, By the dawn of our fourth golden age of rock, uh, they were the closest thing we've ever had within all the waves of guitar noise to a Picasso or a Jackson Pollock. Right. Uh, Really believe that. Those tunings, those squeaks and squonks, all that texture, intensity on loan from hell, And that whole pushing the gas pedal to the floor thing and never, ever, ever hitting the brakes thing. Uh, They were uh, really thrilling uh, to listen to and uh, really thrilling when you like really dug into uh, what they were doing. And nothing was an accident uh, when you when you listen to uh, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo and uh, Kim Gordon in their interviews. Uh, It was there wasn't a whole lot of improv. Uh, going on uh, uh, in these records. And again, uh, this is one of those bands, one of the few rock and roll bands that you can't really bottle or label. Uh, I guess yeah. they're a little bit like Jane's Addiction. Uh, let me rephrase that. They're uh, they're way more like this than Jane's Addiction. Uh, right. Basically, anyone who tries to say that they belong to a genre or that they're alt rock or they try to come up with a description is probably full of shit. Uh, yeah. You know, Sonic Youth is Sonic Youth. Now, uh, Sonic Youth, via its records during this period, this precursor period, 87 to 90, uh, the records we're focusing on are Daydream, Nation, and Goo. Uh, they became a band that a lot of us aspiring uh, young upstarts wished they could be. All right. uh, arguably, the one that came the closest, at least in the mainstream, was Nirvana. Uh, wow. but, but even that's a stretch. Uh for what it's worth, we probably owe, uh, there's a direct uh, path from Sonic Youth uh, to Nirvana that they did some tours together. Uh, the, they signed, Sonic Youth, they signed with uh, DGC, which was uh, a uh, David Geffen uh, offshoot label under the Universal uh, uh, umbrella. Uh, Sonic Youth signed there first, and they pretty much pointed A&R man Danny Goldberg uh, to the direction say, Hey, you ought to check out this guy and his, his band there from Seattle. 
and uh, the rest is history. Uh, anyway, uh, to this day, I would say that Sonic Youth is one of the mightiest bands uh, that's ever walked the face of the earth. And this is where they emerged. Now, let's go back uh, a little earlier to uh, the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, the band's members, uh, more specifically uh, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, uh, one of Rock's uh, more famous uh, uh, married couples now uh, divorced, uh, they're kind of ships in the night during what is known as the no-wave scene, uh, which I, I would personally call the no-tune scene. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of no-wave, uh, but I digress. Uh, now, like I said, founding members in Thurston Moore, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, uh, they're in uh, other bands and, you know, they're kind of in the scene. It's sort of interchangeable of, you know, uh, all these folks are like, you know, I'm I'm in like three bands or, oh, oh, you need me to pinch hit and I'll be there. Uh, but eventually they joined together and figured that they might have a shared uh, vision. And, yeah, there's that whole uh, 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 attraction thing that led to the marriage as well. Uh, Kim Gordon has said in interviews that one of the flashes of genius that led to what became their blueprint, their template and their sound was uh, more coming up with the name of the band Sonic Youth, uh, because yeah, uh, what would, uh, Sonic Youth sound, the term Sonic Youth or the concept of Sonic Youth sound like? if you could structure it and then filter it through your guitars and amps, probably a hell of a lot like the band Sonic. Right. Uh, so uh, it took them a while. I mean, it, they uh, were working their way up through uh, the New York and, and Northeastern clubs and sort of uh, in the underground. And, you know, their original stuff was a little bit, a lot more uh, stunted, I guess you would say, or, or yeah. narrow. And it was, it was noisy, but it, it wasn't distinct. Uh, but they kept at it, and they figured out those tunings, and they figured out uh, those melodies, or you know that how they could uh, sneak melodies into all of those. And uh, the guitar zinging uh, back and forth uh, became uh, more sophisticated, and you eventually end up in 1988 with uh, Daydream Nation, uh, which I would say you've you've used the superlative, but I would certainly say that Daydream Nation is one of the greatest rock albums of all time, and one of the most important uh, for sure. Uh, they really came as close to capturing "quote unquote" Sonic Youth uh, as they could. Uh, really does belong on the short uh, list of whatever you want to call it: hard rock, punk, post rock, etc. Uh, albums of all time. Uh, its ultimate legacy. Uh, other than the Nirvana thing uh, I mentioned is this, uh, along with their second work of blasting cap art goo, uh, Sonic Youth at its peak made noise cool as hell. Uh, they more than anyone carried weird guitar warbles and feedback to the front and center uh, of the mix. Uh, they, uh, you know, with those arrangements, I mean, uh, the one that uh, most uh, sticks with me is Silver Rocket. Yeah. Uh, uh, basically, uh, yeah, it's it, you can bash the fuck out to it when you're listening to it without headphones, but when you yeah. put the headphones on, it's like uh, entering a portal to and then and then smoke some pot. Yeah, or 
yeah, smoke some pot or, Hey, if you want to do angel dust, do that too. Uh, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and just the, uh, even like Lee Ronaldo, who's the third songwriter in the band, his stuff is kick ass too. I mean, you know, pedal to the pedal to the metal and, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, again, noise artists, but also subtly great players. Uh, as well. I mean, you know, Thurston Moore especially is, is world-class or became uh, world-class. And so, uh, because the noise was coming into the mix and they were so influential, we all started to discover and appreciate, uh, that noise art by the midpoint of 1991. And, uh, that to me, is really how the fourth golden age of rock uh, commences. Mm, uh, yeah. It's it's that noise and sonic youth. Uh, I think it's a combination, really, of uh, if you say it's sonic youth plus Jane's addiction, and, and this might be an oversimplification. Uh, those two bands plus the Pixies uh, plus NIN uh, yeah. and Depeche Mode. You get that, and you you launch in, and it triggers uh, this era. Because it was, uh, uh, in a, in a way, as the '90s progressed, at least until it started to peter out in '96, '97, it was kind of a game of, oh yeah, top this, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. what say you about Sonic Youth? I think um, two things: we shouldn't underrate the album Sister from 1987. Uh, th- that really was a dry run uh, for um, uh, Daydream Nation. Uh, sister was the one where they really just went full on with songs for the first time. Yep. Uh, and tracks like schizophrenia and Catholic block, one of the best one, two opening punches of any rock album of the eighties. Um, you have, um, cotton crown, which is like, like, like one of the, I mean, if you want to call anything, Sonic youth does a ballad is the closest thing it came to that, you know, with a, with, with you know, it's a guitar feedback ballad, but it's a beautiful one. And, uh, their, their version of the, of the, the, um, of the their version of hot wire my heart which is by an old san francisco punk band from the 1970s um which is an even better version than the original um sister really is like the precursor to what daydream nation is that perfect cohesion of of avant-garde noise and distortion and finely crafted songs and just rocking the hell out um, and also Goo should be mentioned as well yeah. because Goo was their first major label album. Goo had a minor hit with a cool thing, uh, oh, yeah. starring Chuck D with public enemy oh. doing his little, uh, he's not really rapping. He's doing some spoken word, um, um, excursions yeah. throughout the song. Um, Goo, by the way, is basically a streamlined version of, of daydream nation, but that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Because Daydream Nation's pretty fucking out there, so yeah. <laughs> so a streamlined version of that is still like way way out there for most you know mainstream rock fans of 1990. Um, Goo, by the way, uh, was the second Sonic Youth album to be on Rolling Stone's 2020 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. So hey, you know they didn't get everything wrong; they got something right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But as far as I know, both of those records made the uh, made the 20 cut. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so there you go. It's uh, yeah, goo goo like you said is is more streamlined, and it's one of those things where okay, if you discover the band uh, via goo and dirty, uh, 
and then you just take a step backwards, it's like, yeah. oh, uh, this is when it's done. Th- this is how it's done when you don't have A&R and, and, and uh, you know, m- uh, mainstream radio in a way. And it should be mentioned, uh, this episode and uh, is definitely brought to you by the word precursor because we're coming to the end talking about a precursor to a precursor. Yeah. Period. <laughs> and so... Uh, we, I, I think that uh, those are our 10 points and really, really strong. I mean, th- this is an important era. There's a lot of shit going on. We didn't even talk about hip hop uh, for the most part, because that's also uh, leading up to uh, to the fascinating uh, period of, of the 90s, too. But I think we, 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 we pretty much covered the waterfront here uh, pretty well. Absolutely. Yeah. And so right. uh, that sets us up, uh, folks. Uh, we uh, This uh, concludes part one of nine or episode one of nine. Uh, now the fun will begin uh, in two weeks when we dive into the amazing year of 1991. And so uh, give, give us a little sneak, uh, sneak preview. Yeah, basically, 1991 is essentially the year zero of the fourth golden age of rock. Um, for the for the third golden age of rock, the punk, post punk, new wave scene is generally regarded as 1976, right? When the Sex Pistols put out their first singles and when the Ramones put out their first album, um, the second golden age of rock which was that period of the mid 60s to the very early 70s. I would say the ground the the year 0 years 1964 when the Beatles showed up on Ed Sullivan, right? Sure. Um and then the first golden age of rock in the 1950s when all those 50s rockers came out. I would say the ground year uh, or the year 0 year is probably 1955. When Elvis put out his first singles, Chuck Berry put out his first singles, Little Richard, so on and so forth. Yeah. But for our beloved fourth golden age of rock, 1991, and so much happened and so much came out that year. Um, so this is the first, this is the second episode in the series, but the first episode in the series that's devoted to an entire actual uh one whole year, really. Um, a lot to really talk about here. Um, you have the the two-headed Hydra of Nirvana's 10 and Pearl Jam's... Uh, sorry, Nirvana's 10. Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10, which kind of re- redefined American rock music. Um, U2 changes course and changes their career uh, f- uh, for the better. Um, the Chili Peppers put out a masterpiece slint invent post-rock my bloody valentine and shoegazer um just so much going on uh, old school metal makes his last stand with gnr's use your illusion records there's a lot really to talk about uh in the second uh in this second episode of the fourth golden age of rock which will focus on 1991 and yes. this is going to be a big one for next episode. Yes, and uh, it's worth saying, too, that it was a wonderful year to turn 16. So, yeah, 1991. Lollapalooza, The Black Album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Losing My Religion, and, yeah, that whole grunge thing. Yours truly curmudgeons have you covered in depth and in detail. Stay tuned for Episode 2 of The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, when we'll hit this extraordinary year head on. 
Remember in the meantime to go to Facebook and join the curmudgeonly community. We're good people. The best people. Rock people. We'll be back in two weeks. Peace out.